Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Eddie Moretti. Welcome to the Vice Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Raihan Salam from the National Review. And we're going to talk about a couple of things, mainly Iraq uh, and the anniversary of Iraq. And then um, your thoughts on where we're at with the gun debate in the country. And we're going to um, proudly self-promote for a second and not shamelessly self-promote. We have a new um, episode of our Vice show on HBO. Um, and we did segments on each of these issues. And uh, you've seen them. So I'd like to get your reaction to them. The anniversary of Iraq was this March. We knew we wanted to do something um, to commemorate it or to, to reflect on it. Uh, and Jason and Shane um, had been doing some digging and came upon this story um, and, you know, sort of almost an anecdotal kind of reporting on uh, the rise of birth defects amongst Iraqi populations. So they went over there. Uh, they did this report. Just wanted to, you know, gauge your 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 feeling on on the story and if you've ever come across this kind of reporting before. Uh, I thought the report did a very good job of introducing uh, some of the stories that had um, have emerged in Iraq, and I think that it also did a good job of acknowledging the uncertainties uh, surrounding these birth defects. Um, I think that it's very, very hard to determine precise causality in this case, um, and it's also very hard to see, you know, kind of what actually had been the rate of birth defects prior to the invasion and what have you. Could it be that we're actually doing a better job of identifying these phenomena? Um, it's really, really tough. What we do know, uh, and I think this larger issue about the anniversary of Iraq is that for Americans, um, Iraq was something that happened you know, by and large very far away. There was a number of military personnel and military families who've been directly impacted by it. But for most of us, you know, kind of it was um, you know, over a decade during which there wasn't this immediate visceral kind of connection. And so the fact that you know, combat troops have, uh, have left Iraq leaves us thinking, well, that was an episode of American history that is now over. And I think of it as as akin to agriculture. There was a time when 70% of Americans worked in agriculture um, right. you know, to, just to kind of feed the entire population. Now it's a little bit less than 2%. Similarly, um, you know, if you think about the Second World War, 
when we went out into the world to kind of change the world, to uh, do terrible violence to other places, I mean, sort of justified or not, um, it actually involved an enormous number of people. Right. Whereas now it involves this much smaller number of people, and frankly, it involves uh, you know machines. It, it's this kind of very specialized activity. Um, and so I think that you know when you think about it that way, or you think about drone strikes, for example, you could think of it as the cost of doing violence in faraway places has plummeted. So when the cost of anything plummets, it's like if the cost of crack cocaine mean, is lower, sorry, you, mean you the, do more of it. You mean the human cost or in real well, just the, Just dollar. the simple, exactly, the simple economic cost. I mean, if, you, if the only way we could have conquered uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq was by conscripting the sons and daughters of the American elite. You know, if the only way we could have done that was by spending staggering amounts of money, we did it basically with, you know, one hand tied behind our back, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was something that, you know, was not very visible on the home front for folks who were not related no, to military we families. We didn't feel it in a, exactly. in a personal way. Exactly, Unless exactly. we had a a family member in the military. Exactly, and I think that the beauty of this report is that it's saying that, you know, well, actually, this thing that was, you know, marginal for Americans, this thing that connected with a handful of people but not really the bulk of people, is the whole story of Iraq. I mean, every single life in that country has been touched by it, and actually now, I mean, you and I probably both know people who are Iraqi refugees, for example, who wound up uh, in Syria and Jordan, some of whom have wound up in the United States. Millions, exactly, estimated. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and the huge number of displaced within that country. And the idea that there are going to be reverberations from this war. Uh, so, you know, obviously you have birth defects and this is going to impact uh, the lives of these kids, you know, sort of for many decades to come. But also there are going to be larger political historical reverberations. And we don't really understand all of them, but it goes to Shane's central point in that piece, which is that, you know, when you go to war, it's never going to unfold exactly as you expect. And I think that, um, you know, that has some obvious implications, like, well, just don't do it. It also has some funny implications, like, what was the alternative? What were the counterfactuals? How right. else might things have turned out? Right. Which is something that you wrote about recently, the counterfactuals. Um, in, in your piece in The Nation, you talked about... Um, which in was National just, Review. Uh, sorry, yeah. na National Review. No yeah, not The Nation. <laughs> Big distinction, readers, listeners, uh, viewers. Um, so in that piece, you talked about looking at the counterfactuals to make an assessment on, you know, the you know, the historical outcome uh, of the war. And you, you argued via um, uh, O'Sullivan. Yeah, Megan O'Sullivan. Megan O'Sullivan, yeah. yeah. That not doing something in Iraq could have had, a, you know, a, another set of consequences that we should look at soberly in order to assess the success of the invasion or not. Um, why don't, why don't you explain to us what you wrote in that piece? Yeah, I think that, um, well, Megan O'Sullivan is a really fascinating person. She was the Deputy National Security Advisor, and she was in charge of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, among other things. And, um, you know, one of the things that she talks about is that when we're assessing uh, the invasion of Iraq and the occupation of Iraq, uh, we tend to think about this counterfactual in which, well, we could have just not gone, and then things would have been basically the way they were before. And you know, kind of, we would have contained Saddam Hussein, and that would have been fine, and the region would have been, you know, kind of shitty the way that it 
has been, right. but like not dramatically more so. So basically, we unleashed this crazy whirlwind of violence and destruction for basically no reason. So that's one way to think about it, right? right. Another way to think about it, and again, I have no idea. I mean, no one can know. But another possibility is that, well, Saddam's regime was actually quite vulnerable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but it was also quite vulnerable, uh, violent and destructive. So one scenario that she lays out and others have laid out is that the sanctions were already slowly crumbling. And had those sanctions continued to crumble, had he kept relentlessly pursuing weapons of mass destruction, you know, perhaps he would have once again broken is, out of his cage. Is that a, is that a fact? I'm, I, oh, don't, I just don't know. It's like, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I remember yeah. hearing, um, and I remember Clinton being like really uh, um, uh, criticized by the left yeah. that these sanctions are destroying this country and killing people and yeah. depriving them of medicine. Causing and starvation. Food, causing starvation, et cetera. Um, and also unleashing terrible backlashes amongst the Bathists in the country because the no-fly zones irritated them in terms of their interaction with the Kurds in the north, and you know they were doing things on the ground that the that the the no-fly zone couldn't really um, prevent. So uh, it's news to me that the sanctions were crumbling. It's a very complicated story, but basically, by the time you get around to two thousand. There is a view, a correct view, in my view, that um, sanctions tend to actually strengthen the regimes that are targeted. Make them more surreptitious with their pursuit so, of so weapons? That's, so that's, that, that's one possibility. But another thing is that basically, when you don't have lots of channels coming into a country, like when you don't have lots of you know, private economic transactions, then basically the government has the chokehold, right? So if you kind of narrow the kind of volume of transactions coming into the country. So you know, in a way, Iran, for example, you know, we have these super tight sanctions against Iran that you know, uh, you know, have gotten a lot tighter in recent years. So what's happened is that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, they have actually profited from these super tight sanctions because basically they're the ones who can be blockade runners. They can break the sanctions. They're the ones who control the supply of valuable stuff coming into the country when you're not actually having an open, transparent trading system. Right, and then one step further would be looking at North Korea. Same, 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 same situation. Yeah, even I mean, tighter I, sanctions. Yeah, exactly. And, it, it and kind even of, more intransigent. And that, does, and that doesn't necessarily mean that sanctions are always the wrong thing to do. I mean, usually, you know, we deploy sanctions because it's an alternative to armed intervention, right? right? So in that sense, it could be that, well, it's better than that, or maybe, you know, if they're sufficiently tight, maybe you even actually undermine the regime in some of these ways. You certainly undermine its legitimacy, uh, but it's also an argument people have made about Cuba. And the idea is that, well, all we do by tightening these sanctions, uh, by having these kind of stiff U.S. sanctions, is actually increase the legitimacy of the Cuban regime, because right. they can just say, well, it's actually the fact that you have a terrible life is mm. not our fault. It's the fault yeah. of these U.S. sanctions, etc. So I think that there were people, by the time you get to 2000, 2001, uh, you know, before the 9-11 terror attacks, were like, you know, these sanctions are actually just strengthening Saddam, and Saddam was the one who was actually using them as a kind of weapon, because when he controls the food supply, sure. right, you know, kind of he controls the population, yeah. so yeah, I think yeah. that the, so I think that there were actually, frankly, there were kind of legitimate arguments about why you'd want to undermine those sanctions. Okay, um, where, where is the Republican Party on that issue? Like, you know, where would they come out? Well, I think that, again, you're talking about, you know, 
the late 90s, 2000, and I think that there were cross-cutting tendencies. So you had one tendency, like late in the Clinton administration, you had a lot of Democrats and Republicans who uh, worked together on this Iraq Liberation Act. The idea is that you know we should continue right. working towards overthrowing this uh, is the, the Baptists. neocon. Um, no, it wasn't just neocons. It was actually like a but broader birth, coalition of people. Birth, but birth there maybe first uh, or no? Well, you know, the term neocon to me is not a super useful one, just okay. partly because it means so many different things to different people, but definitely hawkish people. People. Yeah, but those guys, Wolfowitz, yeah, exactly. like, yeah. let, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, Wolfowitz is someone who has been very invested in Saddam Hussein being yeah. a terrible yeah. person for a long, long time. Yeah, and um, intervention as yeah, exactly, the, the, and, yeah. And, and and obviously Saddam Hussein was someone who was at various points embraced by right and left. People never fully understood who and what he was right. when he was fighting against the Iranians. So that's a kind of separate issue. Okay. But so basically, among Republicans during that late '90s, early 2000s period, you had some people, you know, again before 9/11 who were um, you know, just very committed to the idea that Saddam ought to be overthrown and that it's actually this grave injustice that he's still in power. But then you also had people in you know, the oil and gas world Right, who were saying, well, you know, wait a second. These sanctions, all they mean is that you know we don't have this country that could be an alternative to Saudi Arabia that can actually increase global oil supplies. So there were a lot of these and, kind of establishment types who were like, you know, look, is this realistic? Do we need smarter sanctions uh, that are not as tight on Iraq? So I think that you know it was you know both Democrats and Republicans you know who were kind of swirling around these uh, this sets of questions like does this actually make sense is Saddam as dangerous as we think he is um, and I think that you know so, so the counterfactual scenario is that well okay let's imagine those sanctions you know actually did uh, yeah. deteriorate over time yeah. and then Saddam you know let's say he remained as determined as ever partly because he was living in a dangerous neighborhood I mean the thing that we've realized know, is that yeah. you know even people in his regime believed that, that he, he had more had weapons than he did WMD, right. Right. and also like you know the Iranians certainly like if the Iranians knew you know, that he was as vulnerable as he was. I mean, who knows how that geopolitical tinderbox would look. So right. there are all kinds of things we can't really know. Right. And that could have led to pretty awful scenarios. Yeah, where, where are, um, and then I want to go back to the fact that we did go in. So yeah, of course, of that's course. that's a counterfactual to the counterfactuals. Um, and talk again about... Um, factual. Yeah, the factuals yeah. and the potential factuals of these people suffering and what we should course, do about it. But like, just staying on sanctions for a second because it's so important right now in, in terms of how, how we deal with Iran and North Korea. Where are American conservatives, which includes the GOP but doesn't necessarily include them all, where is the conservative movement on the issue of sanctions? Well... The interventionism. Yeah, it's, you know, it's um, it's a... It's a good. It's it's a really good question right now because there's actually a big debate going on among Republicans uh, about sanctions and intervention more broadly. So, in a way, you could think of sanctions as a lighter version of intervention, right? So, you know, basically, like we go in guns blazing, super expensive, difficult, very visible military personnel, military Bloody, families experiencing yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. And even just think about it crudely, just it's expensive. Whereas when you think about sanctions, you know, to a lot of people, well, sanctions, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? We're not actually activating this big constituency. You know, you might have anti-war marches. You're not going to have anti-sanctions marches. Right. So I think if you're a policymaker, you're like, well, that's actually an option that's potentially very attractive right. um, compared to, you know, big, expensive, uh, and politically fraught armed interventions. But again, going back to the drone thing, like the thing is that when you make something cheaper, you make people more likely to use them. Right. You make them more likely to use them willy-nilly, even if it actually leads to all kinds of blowback and destructive consequences on its own. Right. 
So you know, you now have people like Rand Paul uh, and Ron Paul who are saying that you know, not only do we, uh, you know, are we anti-interventionists, uh, but we actually think that sanctions uh, are generally not the right way to go. Uh, you know, Ron Paul and uh, Dennis Kucinich just co-founded this little thing called the Institute uh, for Peace and Prosperity, yeah. which is a new think tank that is just a kind of anti-intervention, yeah. anti-sanctions think tank. And the whole idea is that, you know, look, the best way to advance peace is through free and open trade. You know, that's what we want to do. And so that view, I think, has gained some currency on the right in recent years. Uh, but then you have other people who are saying that, look, you know, the United States has a huge amount of economic weight in the world, we have a huge amount of power, and we have a responsibility to protect the global commons. And so when there are these countries out there that are bad actors, that are undermining global peace and security, we need to do whatever it is we can, you know, sanctions if that's going to work, armed intervention if that's what we need to do. So you know the, the, the movement well, better than I do. What's the potential future of this non-interventionist you know, sanctions light strain, you know, does it have a future? My basic, I think it definitely has a future. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but the reason I think it has a future is this. I think that Americans really vacillate between being like hyper aggressive and like we're gonna, gonna go out there and just, you know, kind of like remake the world in our image and then pivoting super hard in the other direction. So I think that, you know, in a way, when you think about 9-11, you know, kind of it led to this period, about a decade, of intense engagement with the wider world and that engagement to the form of armed violence, right? And and then you think about, and now we're living with the consequence of these military veterans coming back who are profoundly disabled, who are struggling in all kinds of ways. I mean, this is something we're gonna live with for decades and decades. Yeah, and I don't think the country has really come to face the challenges with the vet population off the the heels of these two wars with the with the prescription drug abuse, yeah. with the psychological, the PTSD. Well, yes and no. So I think that you're right that actually we haven't fully faced up to what are the long term costs, and people you know don't really think about it. But I think that you know in these communities, I think that at a gut level, you know, voters are like, yeah. wow, we are not yeah. going to do that again. We are not going to do that again for uh, certainly for a long time. But then you know when you forget, I mean, I think that that's what we're great at. Americans are great at forgetting, right? Right. So then you know, kind of a few years pass. And then you know we forget, and then you know suddenly we learn again that wow, not only is the world a dangerous place, but that danger can touch us okay. directly. Yeah. And so you know that doesn't necessarily mean that then the reaction of like oh well let's go invade another country that doesn't mean that reaction is right. But in yeah. a way you'd kind of hope that we would hit some more mature, sober equilibrium okay, somewhere great. in the middle. So you that's know what my I mean? that's my um op- my my moment to uh, jam Obama into this combo, right? Yeah. So is um is what's your assessment of the Obama doctrine? Um, uh, on foreign policy, is he the, he's, is he demonstrating a reaction to um, uh, the intervention uh, of the uh, you know uh, Iraq invasion, or is he a mature rea- uh, a response? You know, I think that it's fundamentally such a hard job uh, that I mean, I'm not inclined to be like he's terrible, blah blah blah. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's, and I also felt the same way about the previous president. You know, I mean, I think that when you think about the scale of the challenges, my own view is that I think that the Obama foreign policy has been really myopic, um, and I think that it's been really problematic in lots of ways. But I think that it actually makes a lot of sense from a different perspective. It makes sense from this perspective. If you're President Obama and you're like. I am embroiled in these huge conflicts uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I want to get out of them. My core priority is domestic. Uh, you know, the country faces huge fiscal challenges, and I basically just want to do 
the bare minimum of what I have to do for it to not blow up in my face. So when you think about Libya, for example, Libya was a case where Britain and France were super aggressive and they you know, kind of went way out ahead. And then you know, the Obama administration was like, either we're gonna like abandon them or we're gonna basically like do the bare minimum of what we have to do to kind of like keep tabs, keep control of the situation. And then, you know, then Libya is in complete turmoil, and we're like, we're not gonna get more deeply no, involved. No boots right? on the ground, we're in a support role. He got really criticized uh, for that though, right? He got criticized for leading from behind. From yeah. behind well, he got criticized from both angles. He got criticized both by some people, you know, in the Paul wing and other kind of anti-interventionists who were like, you know, don't even get involved at all. I mean, this is just a complete mess and the more involved you are, the worse it'll be. And he also was criticized for, well, if you're going to be involved, you want to be involved in a bigger way. And like Syria is another great case, well, right? Which you, because, I wanted so, to get to. So, yeah. so, so Syria is interesting because Syria is kind of like, okay, you know, we were in a Iraq, uh, it was totally fucked up, and you know it, it actually got really bad, and so like that's a sign of like let's just not get involved. Right. But here's the thing: like in a country where we are not involved, you know, at all, or like involved in a very minimal way, it's still massively screwed up. You have massive sectarian conflict that threatens to a, spill across borders, right? And a lot of people dying. A lot. Staggering number of people dying, and, and obviously, kind of you guys had a program devoted to yeah. these child soldiers and what have you. So the thing is that okay, whether we're involved in this thoroughgoing way or not, there are these conflicts with these countries that are spilling over, that are causing massive problems. And so the question is, do we have some responsibility? To, because I think that here's the thing, Americans are like, well, we're responsible, so that's why we should do something. But in, or, or for example, with Iraq, like there are many people who are like, we shouldn't have gone in in the first place, that's why we should just get out. But another coherent view is that we shouldn't have gone in in the first place, but like, wow, you know what I mean? Like, we have this responsibility now that we're there to not make it worse. I mean, it's a very tricky thing about our attitude of like, when does our responsibility begin and where does it end? And I think that the Obama administration has struggled with this question. So, and and our our story on um, the you know the the toxic after effects of the invasion yeah. is a you know case in point. You know, if, if it's true, what is our responsibility? What is the country's responsibility uh, in, in the aftermath? I think that, you know, in my ideal world, and I'm way, way out of the political mainstream on this issue, I personally think I would have wanted to have a larger American presence in Iraq even now. Uh, so, you know, one thing is that we didn't wind up negotiating a kind of status of forces agreement that would have kept a substantial number of U.S. military personnel in Iraq. Now, this is a crazy view, right? Because everyone's like, we want to wash your hands of Iraq, period. But it's not just that. I think that I wish that we had kept military personnel in Iraq, and also that we were more involved in where the country is going. Um, but you know, kind of, but uh, that, that has some main, that idea has some mainstream support. Isn't that like, you know, McCain's position? Yeah, that, that, yeah but McCain is himself a, an outlier on this stuff. You know, I mean, it's- He because, keeps inserting himself as the mainstream most, of but, the GOP, well, but, but, most, I think most, but is I think he just most, fighting to be most, at the middle? Or? I think most Republicans in the country are, are like, ju just like Democrats, just exhausted. They exhausted want to wash their hands they want, of Iraq. Yeah. But I think that, but to me, so the military thing is actually not the big piece though. The bigger piece is that I think that actually Americans should be more engaged in Iraq in the future. And I think that it's one of those things that, look, after the Afghan Civil War, 
uh, well, after what we, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, what we thought was the end of the Afghan civil war, we were like, okay, cool, like the Soviet Union has collapsed, right. so like let's get out of here, and like you know, it's totally fine now. Yeah. And oh wow, like that's actually not quite true. Now that doesn't mean having a huge number of people there, but it means, you know. Again, what I said before, like Americans are great at forgetting. I wish we were a little bit less good at forgetting yeah. and a little bit better at thinking, you know, this is a place that is enmeshed with us whether we like it or not. Yeah. You know, Iraq and America, we might want to wash our hands of it, but the thing is, and just as those refugees, yeah. you know, like, and those refugees whose lives were deeply uh, Traum- torn apart tra- tra- and traumatized yeah. by the United States, they are not going to forget us. Right. So when we forget them, you know, it's not a two-way street. And so my feeling is that part of this means that, yeah, I think that we want our civil society to be engaged in Iraq. We want American scientists and public health folks and these people to actually yeah. continue to be involved with what's going on. Now, the thing is that the Iraqis kind of want to wash their hands of us too, as difficult as that is, right? So they, you know, that's why they didn't want American military personnel right. there, fair enough, but they also don't necessarily want, um, you know, Americans to be kind of constantly in their face and constantly mm-hmm. present. So on some level, I think that, you know, many of them want to, we're going to deal with this on our own and we're going to like nurse these resentments, which are totally valid, totally legitimate mm-hmm. in a lot of respects. Um, and so, you know, there's a standoff. I mean, this thing that I think some Americans thought of as, gosh, we made these huge sacrifices for you guys. They don't think of it, some of them think of it that way, but not all of them think about it that way, certainly. So there's this, like, deep resentment that's built up between these two societies, and that partly is a function of that which isolation is, we have from each other. Which is bad, considering that, um, you know, Nuri al-Maliki is close to the Iranian regime in some ways, and, you know... Um, does that present a real problem for us going forward? Where, where, where does that relationship go? Well, that's a really fascinating and thorny question. So it's true that Iran has a lot of influence in Iraq, but there's also this kind of nationalist resistance to excessive um, Iranian power in Iraq. In, too. in Iraq, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Partly because, you know, remember that you know, Iraq and Iran fought a bloody, brutal war in which millions died, uh, you know, for a decade. So, I mean, I think that, you know, and including among some Shia Iraqis, too, there's this distrust yeah. of Iran and wanting to be controlled by Iran. So there's that. But, I mean, you know, look, if Americans believed that a free and democratic Iraq was going to be an ally of the United States, uh, I think that those hopes and expectations have been massively disappointed, right? Mm. Um, and I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Iraq is, you know, simply, you know, uh, an Iranian cat's paw, simply an Iranian ally. But it does mean that Iraq continues to be up for grabs. Yeah. Um, and also, internally, uh, you know, you have an upsurge in violence. You know, you kind of have this Sunni minority that continues to be very resistant to the Maliki government. You have Iraqi Kurdistan that's kind of like, look, you know, we want to insulate ourselves from this chaos. And of course they and, do. And, ha- of course and they they've do. been doing a fairly successful job. Yeah, at that. yeah. And I think that it's they're, a different you know, country exactly, up there. exactly, exactly. And there's been a lot of progress. So I think that, you know, this is a country that continues to be incredibly fragile, uh, in which, you know, there was some progress in establishing certain kinds of democratic norms. And I think you see backsliding all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think that. It's, and I think from like a U.S. geopolitical perspective, you know, Iraq, uh, uh, Iraqi oil production is increasing. Are we so making money there? 
Uh, I, th I, you know, it's hard. Are, to are, are those Chinese leases or American leases? Uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. I think that there's. I mean, I think that it's still because the, the security situation is still not where you'd want it to be, uh, for it to be like a huge, huge contributor. But I mean, that is steadily going up. And I think the Chinese point you make is a really, really good and important one, because basically, you know, we had this era in which the United States and the Soviets were competing for influence uh, in the Middle East, and then you know the Soviet influence collapses, uh, and now you're once again coming to a point. Where there's this bipolar situation because the Chinese, you know, they obviously are going to want to secure oil and gas supplies as well. I mean, that's something that's kind of crucial for their growth and flourishing. And so they're increasingly trying to flex their muscles. And, you know, a society like Iraq that is, in this sense, up for grabs uh, is a society that, you know, Americans and Chinese are going to vie for uh, in terms of influence and much else. Um, so I think that it's just a very, you know, it's very uncertain. It's a it's a wash. It seems in terms of any economic um, long term benefit to the United States well, in terms of the cynical view that we went in for oil. Yeah, I'd say that at best it's a wash, right? Yeah. And I'd say at best it's a wash because you also have to consider. So we're talking about counterfactuals before. The other counterfactual is. Well, if we spend some, you know, you'd see many different estimates, but something along the order of like three trillion dollars, you know, kind of a, not just a rock, but like I can post nine eleven on kind of this homeland security invading these countries, everything else. We could have spent that money on a lot of other stuff, right? Like, had we spent that money on, um, you know, making friends, you know, air dropping cash yeah. Yeah. in the Middle East, and just you know, kind of like adopting babies, uh, and just generally being like very who knows not Russian babies, but yeah, or you know, if we or if we babies. you know, kind of uh, or if we invested that money in building you know a series of incredibly powerful cyborg police officers who would keep our streets you know completely safe. I mean, whatever. I mean, there are all kinds of things we could have done. So you always have to think in terms of the foregone resources, and also you know the number of people who died both here and there. Like think about the number of Iraqi civilian casualties. I, I don't mean to be schmaltzy, but you know, fundamentally, how many of these young people would have grown up to be incredibly talented, brilliant, right. creative a, people who would have done great things, and, yeah. and just and the same for the American military personnel who died. So I think that, but yeah, like it is possible that there will be some modest benefit that will derive from Iraqi oil production increasing. But of course, if you're Ron Paul or Rand Paul, you'll say, well, yeah, we could have also just eased the sanctions. Right. You know, kind of on the previous regime, and that would have undermined the authoritarian regime of Saddam Hussein. So, I mean, the truth is that there are lots of strong arguments on all sides of these questions. What we do know is, and, and what I kind of what bothers me a little bit is that I think people are very lazy in thinking about what happened in Iraq because which people who every, every, everyone, all of us, okay. Americans are lazy in thinking about it because there's this view that well, had we not done it, then things would have been rad. And I think that the thing is that Syria is the story, right? Because yeah. Syria is a situation where like, we didn't go in, and guess what? Things aren't right. actually awesome at all. Yeah. Things are scary and horrible because, I mean, so, so you could say that the, the foolish thing that the United States did is we increased our exposure to these societies that are just tribal. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to you know, go for these cliches, but like that are just kind of have these intense historical resentments. And so in a way we were like, hey, let's go in there and in the middle of these intense historical resentments and just you know, try to do our best to fix it. So maybe you could say that, well, at least with Syria, we're not trying to get in the middle of it, but these but, things are gonna affect our lives but, no matter but what. The, but the line has been drawn by America now, by Obama. Yeah. Um, it needs to be a clear and imminent threat. 
to our um, you know ex existence or our, our national interests in order to use force. Well, that's not quite right. Like, I mean, I think Libya was an example where it certainly was a clear and imminent threat, but I think that that's the general orientation. You want to kind of move in that direction. Um, I mean, you know, we intervene in all kinds of places, again, because like the cost is lower, right? But I think that, you know, yeah, that certainly the idea is like, let's not just go wherever, let's be very cautious about that. And that, in a way, is going back to what we used to call the, the Weinberger Doctrine under Reagan right. or the Powell Doctrine, uh, you know, the idea that you want to go in with overwhelming, overwhelming force, you want to have an force. exit strategy, et cetera. Which sounds responsible. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I think that, so what I kind of want to get across is that there are a lot of these cases that aren't very clear cut. Right? So, you know, if you have a situation where, yeah, like it's not quite worth it for us to invade this country and occupy it and do all these other things, but it might be worth it for us to send a bunch of drones and vaporize some people from the sky. Now, I think that, you know, so, so that's actually what our policymakers are dealing with. They're dealing with that, like, middle zone. Because, frankly, it's almost never worth it to kind of go in and send bodies just because it's expensive, because it's traumatic, everything else. And that middle zone doesn't make sense for us to kind of mess with it on some other level. And that's exactly what we're talking about with Syria. We're talking about arming the Syrian opposition and all this other stuff. Now, the problem is that we have this fantasy that we can do that antiseptically. Like, oh, all we have to do is like, you know, beep, boop, bop, you know, kind of right. with the video game and right. like just do that right. and that's not gonna have blowback and consequences. Right. And then there's also the fantasy right. that if we do nothing, that it won't actually touch our lives. What's, what do you, yeah, it, it's incredibly difficult to make a move and make exactly, a decision. Exactly. Think, like, about, think about bin Laden. Think about the 9-11 terror attacks. In a way, the whole point was bin Laden had problems with the Saudi government, the government in Egypt, these other authoritarian governments where he was kind of like, you know, these governments are corrupt and un-Islamic, okay? And these governments are backed by the United States, so what we could do is we could attack Riyadh, or we could attack Cairo, and like attack these governments, or we could attack what he called the far enemy, right? So in a way, the United States, we were thinking, hey, we're just going along to get along, and like, we're friends with the Saudis because we want oil, basically, and like, whatever, and the Egyptians, and, you know, kind of, the they're friends with, doing, uh, they're at like, peace with Israel, so like, let's just yeah, kind of, whatever, yeah. we did that in like 1979, so like, we're just trying to be chill and like, keep these things stable, and like, whatever. And then suddenly, Bin Laden is like, uh, actually, your like, desire to kind of just, stick with the status quo, it means that I'm going to attack you. So I think that in a way, we can get drawn into these things because we're already so deeply enmeshed in so many ways. So I'm going to say something that maybe is controversial. Did 9-11, did the invasion of Iraq actually lead to the Arab Spring? I think that it goes, I think that, I think that they are related to each other in, complicated ways. So I think that one view is that it has nothing to do with it. If anything, the invasion of Iraq actually made things worse uh, because it discredited um, you know, democracy and kind of, that's one view that actually, you know, it absolutely didn't make anything better, you know, et cetera. Another view is that seeing elections in Iraq, seeing kind of open, you know, which again- Well, seeing all, the but, deposition of a dictator. Yeah, it, yeah, it, absolutely. It, I think that to some degree that might have been empowering to see, you know, but there are other dimensions too. Like if you look at these countries in the Gulf that are incredibly rich, urban, you know, kind of becoming world beaters, um, there are a ton of Egyptians and Tunisians and other Arabs who are working in those societies who are like, 
the world has more possibilities. The kind of bullshit that we have to deal with in Egypt right now, we don't necessarily have to deal with. So I think that there, so the Iraq invasion was one thing, but then also these other cultural and economic developments were another thing that contributed to it. So there's a lot going on. I, I read something really remarkable about, about the Egyptian revolution that um, it was in part a meme on the internet in Egypt um, before the revolution um, uh, that was uh, um, launched by a analysis of Google um, images, Google map images, yeah. where they saw the country from space and could see the compounds held by Mubarak and his cohorts in relationship to the shitty neighborhoods that they had to live in and that that helped, you know, Contribute to the revolutionary consciousness. Yeah, you know? I, think, so. I think I think that's I think that's there's definitely a lot to that. There is another thing. So to take it away from the Arab Spring in Myanmar, uh, you know, where you have this uh, this junta uh, that has been very solidly entrenched for a very long time, um, they've just dramatically opened up. And so one question is, you know, why did that happen? I spoke to a friend of mine who is a correspondent uh, who's been covering Southeast Asia since the mid '80s, and what she told me. Who knows? But what she said is that actually the Iraq invasion had a profound effect on wow, a lot of the folks really? in, the, in the military regime. And their view is that you know we're more vulnerable than we think, and we actually want to kind of head off something along these lines. Uh, so when kind of there was external pressure, Could now I don't want. By the way, I want to emphasize that does not justify anything, right? Like the fact that you know kind of no, it might have led some kind of. We're but, just talking here and bouncing but, but ideas think, but I, around. But I think that it's. But I think that it's important to underline that because I think that whenever you suggest that the Iraq invasion might have had not just bad consequences, but some somewhat good consequences, I think people flip out. They do I, flip out. I, think, I don't flip out, but well, they well, do. I think, that, I think that's to your credit, but I think that like fundamentally, I think that what we need to understand, it's like it's this very deep thing. Good things and bad things come wrapped in these packages all the time. And I think that it's just something, and that's why policymaking, it's why foreign policy is like such a struggle, because, you know. You have to accept it as being dialectical, otherwise you're going to be, you know. Yeah, you're um, going to be paralyzed. You're going to be paralyzed. Um, we could talk about this forever and ever. I guess I want to, let's put a pin on this um, uh, Iraq uh, yeah. conversation um, in, in, uh, in, the, in, you know, the notion that, um, do you think on a pulling back and getting like the bigger historical narrative that um, history is actually going to corroborate what Bush said um, about the war, that history will be the final judge? I think that if Iraq is a flourishing and stable democracy 20 years from now, I think that then people will say, well, you know, that was miserable and horrible, but it was ultimately worth it. And I think that, I personally think that that is not the likeliest outcome. So I guess my answer is no. Uh, but, you know, when you think about some of the countries that are the richest, uh, you know, most successful democracies in the world, uh, I think about a country like South Korea. This is a country that faced grinding miserable poverty. I mean, there were people uh, on the verge of starvation. This was a society that was just absolutely and utterly devastated. And then went through a long period of authoritarian rule mm -hmm. and then came out of it uh, in incredibly strong shape. And it's just interesting when you think about how different societies deal with that kind of collective trauma. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, you know, I don't discount the possibility that Iraq could get through this very uh, difficult and ugly transition in relatively good shape. But I think that the headwinds are just against them so hard right. in the region and what have you. So I think that, you know, fundamentally, you know, what George W. Bush believed, uh, and I think what a lot of the people who, um, you know, favored the Iraq invasion, myself included, believed, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the idea that democracy is only suited to some countries is totally wrong. You know, the Arab world, once they're given an opportunity, once the Iraqis are given an opportunity, um, you know, it will take and these will become modern, flourishing societies just like those, um, you know, in East Asia and, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Um, and I think that it's just, man, if you go into the situation with like deep historical ignorance, uh, that doesn't mean that actually democracy is not possible. Absolutely not. I think that it is very mm-hmm. much possible. But I mean, democracy is one thing and there are these there are a million other things that you need to make a society work mm-hmm. and to build that civil peace. That's the foundation uh, of prosperity and much else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my my verdict is uh, pessimistic. And then just one last question, then we'll move on. Um, is John Kerry's appointment going to signal a different um, attitude towards um, post-war uh, uh, Iraq? I... Or does it really matter at all? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question because I think that Hillary Clinton, um, I think, was insanely good at certain aspects of being Secretary of State. Uh, certainly being a voice for the United States, that uh, her, you know, kind of her skills with public diplomacy were incredible. Uh, she had an enormous credibility. I mean, she, she was a very formidable She person. was liked. Incredibly well-liked, yeah. And I think that Kerry is someone who, um, you know, I don't necessarily share his instincts on uh, all kinds of issues, but he's been deeply enmeshed in these questions. He has incredibly strong relationships uh, with um, heads of foreign governments and what have you. And he is obviously deeply interested um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so... I think it's hard to tell. I mean, I think fundamentally the Obama administration is just not as engaged in Iraq as it might be uh, for all kinds of totally fair reasons, except I think Syria is kind of dragging them back in, partly because those countries are deeply intertwined. Um, And so I I can't really say. I mean, I think that it's more, I think it's less Kerry's appointment and more the fact that Syria is a bigger deal Mm. that will make the difference because I I imagine Hillary Clinton would have had to have adapted to that Mm. circumstance as well. We could really talk about this forever and ever. Um, well, uh, let's turn to the gun debate and, and gun control legislation. Um, what happened? Uh, it got knocked down. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a very interesting um, development because basically it was like a perfect storm. This was the best case scenario for um, some kind of gun uh, legislation to pass. Mm-hmm. Because the the people, so we're all talking about this amendment, the Manchin-Toomey amendment uh, to this larger gun right. um, legislation uh, effort. And Manchin is a Democrat, but like a, a very conservative um, Democrat from West Virginia, which is a state that loves its guns. Right. Uh, so if you're a Republican or a Democrat from that state, you're going to feel very strongly about gun rights, and he absolutely does. Um, and he's someone who's known for um, you know, making common cause with Republicans on any number of issues. Um, and, then, and then Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania, who is a Tea Party stalwart, hardcore conservative. He was the president of the Anti-Tax Club for Growth. He has very strong credibility um, as a conservative, but also on gun rights. And so they came together and they were like, look, you know, let's just, you know, President Obama wanted to do all kinds of things. He wanted to uh, ban certain assault rifles. He wanted to ban high-capacity magazines. He wanted uh, greatly expanded background checks. 
Now, expanded background checks are very popular. Like, you've got over 80% of the population that wants background checks. So then Manchin and Toomey were like, you know, no assault weapons ban, no re ban on high capacity magazines. Reduce the scope of the legislation. Yeah, ex let's just focus on expanded background checks and not even universal, not even close to universal background checks. Let's just have background checks um, that are expanded a little bit for commercial transactions. Right. So if I want, if Eddie wanted to sell right. a gun to his daughter, for example, you still wouldn't have to go through this background check. So, right. so that's kind of still going to happen. And they also very intelligently said, well, we're not just going to expand background checks. We're going to do some things that are actually good for gun owners. So basically, you know, because we have very different gun laws state to state, mm. um, if you're traveling from one jurisdiction to another in the United States, sometimes you can run into serious problems. So you know, even if you're like, I'm at the airport, I'm checking in my handgun, I'm totally doing this in a totally legit above board above way, board. I could still have a situation where like, okay, I got bumped from my flight, I'm sleeping overnight you know, in a state where I'm not allowed to have my firearms. I had to actually uncheck my luggage. I had to sort of you know, get it off the plane. And then I could be in violation of the law. Right. And you know, this kind of thing happens from time to time, not that often, but so they were thinking like, hey, let's do something else that actually benefits these guys, as well as something that you know, kind of is seen as a restriction. And so they got the support of a really large number of senators, a majority of senators. I think the last I saw was like something on the order of 54, 55. But there were four Democrats who in the end defected uh, who, and, you know, who were from rural states yeah. and who were like, we're not gonna go along with this. Right. And so, and then also, you know, obviously most Republicans were against it, but you had, I believe it was four or five who were right. for it. So it wasn't quite enough because those Democrats defected from the, uh, from the amendment. And that is why the legislation itself failed. What's behind the intransigence? Um, is it a Second Amendment argument or is it, to your point, these are rural states and these people, um, you know, gun culture is just part of their life and they use them in different ways than someone in Chicago or New York City uses them. So the, the most straightforward answer to the question is that, so 17% of Americans uh, live in rural areas. Uh, and 56% of Americans who live in rural areas uh, have a firearm in their home. Right. Uh, and in the 70s, those numbers were different. In the 70s, it was like 27% lived in rural areas and 70% owned a firearm. Oh, yeah. so, so the numbers are, are kind of smaller. But the thing is that rural areas are very well represented. Uh, you know, if you look at the U.S. Senate, for example, I mean, the classic yeah. example is that um, you know Wyoming and California both have uh, you know two senators, but you know California has 66 times as many people, right? right? So a lot of these states that have big rural populations have a lot of influence. So that's the thing that a lot of people who advocate gun control are like, you know, and that's kind of totally unfair, blah blah. But there's another way of looking at it, and I think that I'm more sympathetic to your second view, which is that so. Okay, why do people in rural areas have different attitudes? In New York City, if you call the police uh, and you report a crime in progress, like a robbery in progress, or you see a man with a gun, the police will show up in 4.6 minutes. If you are in a rural area that, you know, kind of, a, it's, it's the state police or the, you know, it's the sheriff's department. Trooper you know, John. Yeah, Trooper John. Trooper John, you know, maybe it'll take him an hour to get there. You know, kind of if he's like really kind of like, you know, putting the pedal to the metal. Uh, you know, it could be that if you're in a very remote place, like if you're talking about a kind of a, a little mountain town, uh, it'll be longer than that. So then there's this mentality. And again, it's not just response times, but it's this idea that the mentality is different. The mentality is that we are our first line of defense. Right. It's a different America. Exactly. But there's another thing, which is that 
urban areas, like sort of big cities, have way more gun homicides than rural areas on a per capita basis. Like rural areas have suicides, they have gun accidents, they have all this other stuff, but they don't have a ton of gun homicides, whereas urban areas do. So in a way, we have this mismatch. America is both this very urban country that has urban problems. It's also a country that you know, has this small rural minority that has a lot of political heft and that also our ideology, our way of thinking about ourselves has a lot to do with this idea that we are this country of rugged individualists. We're a country that actually kind of in which armed citizens or you know, kind of are ultimately responsible for themselves. So those two things clash. And so in a way, when you're thinking about like, you know, suburban voting, these kind of people, they're kind of torn. Some of them go in this direction of like, well, we're city people and like, why would we have guns? Like, that's actually crazy. That's uncivilized. Whereas there's this other mentality that actually having a gun is the ultimate form of civilization because it means that no one can coerce me. But isn't but but the the, the laws that were proposed, even yeah. even the ones that got struck down by um, uh, Toomey and, and in in that amendment, they weren't really impinging on that those essential rights to yeah, bear I think, arms. I think you're I think you're like, I think you're I think you're right about that. I think that these I think they did a very careful job. And not only that, but they also had a provision. So the big anxiety among many gun owners was that background checks, the expanded background checks would lead to a national gun registry. A big master list of everyone who has guns and which guns they have and which where. Which isn't a totally crazy idea. Uh, I think that There's it's, a registry I, of all of our cars. I think it's right? a reasonable thing to be concerned about, but the thing is in this legislation, Manchin and Toomey explicitly put in a provision there that said that anyone who tries to use this to create a, a registry will have to go to jail for 15 years. So they were really trying to dramatically and in an over-the-top way say there is not going to be, there's right. not going to be a gun registry right. here. But I think that, um, you know, what, I, what, I, but I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that that's where the fear comes from. And I, I think that, you know, the truth is that this legislation wouldn't have done all that much to gun owners, and it wouldn't have done that much for people who advocate gun control either, because again- It's not gonna change the farmer with his gun yeah. who needs to respond because Trooper John- well, forget about that, it's probably not gonna stop a lot of gun trafficking either. No. You know, it's really, here's what happened, Eddie. Like, this is just a very American thing. Maybe it's just a democratic I'm thing. I'm not okay? American, so I, no, no, I struggle well, with also, this one. But it's also a Canadian thing too, but here's the thing. I think that we, in a democracy, we want to be cleansed. When a bad thing happens that we don't understand, we want to do something about it, and we want to show that the moral order is intact. That is fundamentally what it is. So for example, after the big corporate scandals of the 2000s, we had this Sarbanes-Oxley legislation that was passed. Right. Probably didn't really do anything. After Nixon, after Watergate, we passed these campaign finance regulations. Did that lead to a political system free of corruption? No. But we passed a law, we feel like, We felt okay, better. Yeah, we felt better, we got rid of that. And I think that in a way, you know, after the financial crisis, we didn't do something that really made us feel like feel better about ourselves, okay? And after Newtown, uh, after these school shootings, we now 
like I think a lot of people just let's just do something. You know, let's just do something. I, I, I don't even I, care if it's going to work or not. Let's just do I something. I think that's the, the the country where the country. I, well, I think by that, the I think that's where a huge. Uh, no, huge. Well, the problem is that actually the intensity for those. The people Congress who isn't it there, the, but I, I think everyone yeah. agrees the country is there. The Congress isn't there, but to, for reasons that you described, well, the representation was, is well, skewed. But, but, but yes and no. So it's also about intensity, right? Because I think that the people who are very afraid and angry about the idea of a gun registry, they care a lot more about okay. it than the people who favor gun control. So groups. intensities opens the door uh, for another, and maybe the last question, because yeah. we're probably running out of time. Um, so, uh, you know, there's one point of view that believes that the intensity for, or the Puritan, Puritanism around the Second Amendment yeah. is fueling the reaction against these laws. The other school of thought is that these people hate Obama. And the fact that Obama has put himself on the line in such an obvious way, uh, in such a dramatic way, in such a sincere way probably, um, that they're like, this isn't gonna go because now he's gotten way too involved and put him and exposed himself and um, I'm going to uh, obstruct again. Well, I, so here's the, the way I think about it. Starting in 2000, about, after the 2000 election, Democrats really abandoned, particularly at the national level, gun control as a kind of political argument because they recognized that it was just hurting them with a lot of rural voters. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a Democrat who wants to win a Senate seat in Missouri, you know, kind of all of these swing states, uh, being for gun control efforts was just very problematic for you long before Obama came on the scene. It's almost the way that um, being anti-immigration reform is kind of bad for Republicans now. It's okay, let's not go down that, that, that tangent. But, but, but I think that, but the thing about President Obama is this. President Obama... Uh, you know, he made his, his adult life in the south side of Chicago, okay? And that gives you a certain perspective on the world. I mean, he is someone who is very much an urban person who is really rooted in kind of urban concerns and anxieties. So in American cities, it's not new. American cities have been imposing gun regulations for over 100 years, you know what I mean? This is not a new development. You know, if you look at the Wild West, uh, you know, kind of these towns, they said check your guns at the city limits, you know what I mean? So cities and urban people have tended to be more in favor of gun control for a long time, so I think that that could be part of it. You know, George W. Bush was a president who, in a way, you know, he was himself an urban guy as well, but he had kind of a rural vibe and he seemed to understand rural America. Whereas Barack Obama, I think to a lot of rural people, seems like this dude is not about what we're about. Like, he does not get it at a visceral level. He does not understand our needs and concerns. He's like a Chicago person, right. and he wants to impose laws for Chicago on the country. Now, that's not a fair characterization. That's not what this legislation was, for example. But I think that that's the perception of him, and I think that that is why, I think that that does contribute to the resistance. It, but it, I think that the resistance would have been there before. It would have been there under a different, okay, if Hillary had been president, yeah. you know, if someone, you know, if McCain had been president I, and, yeah. and proposed the same thing, I think it would have happened. I think the, um, the, the, the country might actually still be playing out the, the east-west, you know, um, dialectic of, uh, you know, of, you know, that we're familiar with from westerns, like the big country or something like that. It's Gregory Peck coming from the east, 
um, to this lawless, um, um, you know, Western territory with you know beautiful big skies, but it also has uh, Charlton Heston, yeah. who is representing those, you know, that other side of America, and it's kind of fucking weird that that's where we're still at today yeah. in a lot of ways. I think the our politics is, is all psychodrama. Yeah, yeah, I think our politics is all psychodrama. I think that that's. I think that if you understand that, if you understand that that's like eighty-five percent of it, then I think you then these debates. They don't stop being frustrating, but they make a lot more sense. Right. Thanks for coming by. It was great. Thank you, Eddie. Okay. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.